From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, tracking a Superfund site in Greater St. Louis where local people desperately want to get relocated because of environmental hazards and worsening health problems. It's very frustrating because this is worse than Love Canal. It's worse than any site I've been in. It's because it's radioactive waste, it's a garbage landfill, it's a fire, and that's just terrifying. Who's trying to help? Also, wolf researchers are working to figure out why wolves howl and what they might be saying. When you sit and listen to that lone wolf howl, almost moaning, and it, it just doesn't sound, it sounds so emotional. And you know, we're trying to really figure out what does that wolf howl mean. We'll have howling wolves and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In suburban St. Louis, people are waking up to a toxic waste catastrophe, and the trouble is treble. First, murky records indicate that the West Lake landfill in the small city of Bridgeton, Missouri, is loaded with high-level radioactive waste, possibly including decay products from weapons-grade uranium. A Washington University report says the rad waste has migrated into groundwater linked to the floodplain of the Missouri River. Second, a neighboring waste dump in Bridgeton is on fire underground, about 1,000 feet from the West Lake site's underground radioactive plume. And third, in this area, the rates of rare childhood cancers are high. Lois Gibbs, the environmental activist who famously organized parents to protect the health of families at Love Canal, is working with St. Louis families who live near the waste sites, and she joins us now to discuss the situation. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, first of all, how did radioactive waste wind up at the West Lake landfill there in St. Louis? It ended up there because it's part of the Manhattan Project. St. Louis was big in doing the Manhattan Project many, many, many years ago. And so the waste was deposited all around the St. Louis area. And then they started to clean it up. And when they cleaned it up, they put it in the Westlake landfill, not realizing that it was as much of a danger as it has now become. How did the government go through the process of approving the dumping of this waste in the Westlake neighborhood there? Well, that's a real good question. Nobody seems to be able to answer that. They were supposed to clean up the radioactive waste from different parts throughout the region there, Bridgeton, Westlake, and what they ended up doing was putting it in this dump site. They believed that it was low-level waste, so they didn't have to worry about it, but as it turns out, it was very high-level waste. And it's in an unlined landfill, which used to be a quarry. So when you think about quarries, just think about how deep they are. It was disposed of in there and then covered up and essentially sold to Republic Services afterwards. So we're talking about uranium. What kind of stuff is there? Uranium is definitely there. Very high-level radioactive material, the stuff that people keep talking about wanting to put in Yucca Mountain or another secure location far, far away from both groundwater and human health. And it's very, 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 very dangerous. Which government body did this originally, and who's responsible for it now, in your view? 
Well, right now, it's the responsibility of the federal government. The Environmental Protection Agency actually took the two landfills and declared them one Superfund site. They're trying to figure out what to do with this waste. The local community is asking them to dig it up and take it out into a secure place. EPA is saying, no, maybe we can just leave it on site, but it's so hazardous. The other thing that's really interesting about this case that makes it, I think, especially dangerous is next to the Westlake landfill where all the radioactive material is, very high-level radioactive material, is a garbage dump. This is the Bridgeton site. And this, too, was once a quarry, so it's quite deep. And this quarry has caught on fire and has been burning for four years. The scary part is that the fire is moving towards the neck of the radioactive material in Westlake. I mean, literally, these two dump sites are only a thousand feet apart. When the fire reaches those radioactive site, no one knows what is going to happen. It's just so frightening. And around the community is people, you know, moms and dads and families and dogs and cats and schools, and they're all panicked. So the fire sounds like it's a ticking time bomb there. What have you been told could happen if the fire does reach the radioactive waste area? If the fire reaches a radioactive dump, there will be an event. Now, the emergency services guys came out to the community and told them, if there is an event, what you need to do is shelter in place. All the families need to shelter in place, and you need to shelter in place for probably a week because what we need to do is go around with a testing equipment like a Geiger counter, and we have to test every car, every swing set, every backyard, every front yard. And so you cannot exit your home until after we've done that testing. And and a funny story is one gentleman stood up when the emergency guy was telling the story, and he says, well, what am I supposed to do with my dog? Train him in kitty litter? I have to take my dog out. You're going to have to shelter in place for two weeks until we test every single piece of property to know whether or not it's radioactive to a level that's unhealthy. That's insane. So what's being done to prevent that from happening? What's being done to stop that fire from reaching the radioactive material? So they're talking about putting a barrier between the two dumps, sort of a barrier wall, if you will. But the problem with that is that's two years down the line and before they even get the study out in the proposal, and then, of course, it has to go through public comment. The fire could reach there much faster. It just depends on how much oxygen gets into the dirt. And some people are saying that if they dig that ditch to put that wall there, they'll introduce oxygen to the site, and the oxygen will cause it to move quicker over to the radioactive site. And then we don't know what's going to happen. An event will happen. Now, how has the contamination there affected people's health? What's the public health situation around this radioactive landfill? Well, there's been a number of studies, and what they're finding in these studies is that there is a 300% increase in the last few years of brain cancer in young children. And this is really frightening. We have a number of the leaders of the local community whose children have died from brain cancer, immune system problems, leukemia. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And these are not wealthy people. These are community people who are working class community. You know, they don't have a lot of money. They're trapped in their houses and they're just watching their children get sicker and sicker. How sure are they that the cancers are being caused by the radioactivity, do you think? 
Well, like most studies, they're saying that there is a cluster there. They believe it is related to the radioactivity and or the smoke, but nobody ever puts, you know, one and one together. We've been through this before with Woburn, Massachusetts, Love Canal and the other sites. But, you know, there's there's a cluster there. And the only thing these folks have in common is the radioactive material and the smoke in the burning landfill. The smoke from the burning landfill, I guess, well, it doesn't smell very nice. You've been there. What does it smell like? It smells like rotten eggs. There was a journalist who was there a couple weeks ago when the cover of the burning landfill, they have like a canvas cover on top of it, when it ripped open because it was pillowing up, and he just took one whiff and started vomiting on the side of the road. This is what people have to live with every single day. The attorney general has filed notices of violation almost every quarter. It's above standards, air standards, and people are living with this every single day. And they literally cannot go outside. One of the moms tells this interesting story is that when she puts her children outside, she puts a timer on her oven for 15 minutes. And when the timer bings, she goes out to smell the air to make sure that it's not full of smoke and chemicals, because you can actually smell this stuff. You can't smell the radon, you can't smell the radioactive material, of course, but you can certainly smell the smoke and the toxics that are burning next door. And so she'll go out and smell the air. If it doesn't smell too bad, she'll go back in the house and set her timer for 15 minutes again and keep on checking. This is how people have to live there because it's radioactive material and it's smoke and it's toxic and it's going literally into their homes, into their yards, and there's no escape. It sounds like a nightmare. It is a nightmare. And, you know, the federal government is responsible because it's a Superfund site. They've mismanaged the site for years. So there's nobody paying attention to this, nobody dealing with it. And the community is so frustrated that they've been picketing EPA. They've been writing letters. They've gotten their Senator McCastle and their Senator Blunt to do a letter to EPA. And we still haven't gotten any action. There's nobody there who knows about the site, nobody there who's taking care of the site. And Gina McCarthy, the administrator just refuses to meet with us. And what the community is looking for is the evacuation of their families. They really need to get out. And Gina McCarthy does have the authority under Superfund to evacuate the community. Now, when you confronted a government about the situation at Love Canal, one of the things that happened down the road was the creation of the whole Superfund process, the designation of sites and such. How do you feel that Superfund doesn't seem to be working uh, to help these people? No, it doesn't. I'm not sure it's Superfund. Superfund actually has a provision in it that says if you can't stop the exposure in a timely manner, then you can move the people. So they they have authorization to do that. And we made sure that was in there when we put Superfund together years ago. I don't understand why there is resistance to doing this. I've been involved in 16 relocations across the country, Pensacola, Florida, and Times Beach, and so forth. And I don't understand it because the state is supporting relocation. The state is supporting doing something by EPA. It's EPA who's holding strong, and, and it just doesn't make any sense. But I don't think it's Superfund. I think it's the administration of Superfund that's creating the problem. Lois, what about the company that owns this, Republic Services Incorporated? I understand they bought it from Browning Ferris Industries, but it's theirs now. How are they responding and how are you reaching out to them? 
Well, one of the things we're doing with them is that we're going after Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a significant shareholder of Republic Services. Republic Services is saying we're not responsible. We didn't know when we bought it. But Bill Gates really cares about health and children's health. He just divested from McDonald's, for example, to, to keep children healthy. So we're asking him to use his position as a shareholder to really ask them to evacuate these people. Republic Services says, well, they didn't know, they didn't have anything to do with this, but the law, the Superfund law says, hey, if you own it, you have to own all the problems that it has. That's right. They should have done due diligence. My understanding is they just bought BFI, and as a result of that, they took the good and the bad, but you know, because they didn't know doesn't make them innocent. That's how the Superfund law works, right? That's how the Superfund law works. The Superfund says you are joint and several responsible, meaning that Republic Services is responsible for Westlake and Bridgeton. They are responsible not only for the remedy of cleanup, but they're also responsible to care for the human health and the environment around that site and do it right in using the St. Louis Corps of Engineers to take that radioactive, the high-level radioactive waste out of that site and put it in a secure location somewhere. Uh, Lois, before you leave, uh, what do you hope happens in this situation? What's your, what's your aspiration for these people? What I'm hoping will happen is that EPA would agree to evacuate all those who wish to leave within that two-mile radius and would agree to dig up that high-level radioactive waste and put it in a safe place, not in the middle of a community, and, and do something about the fire. They can't put it out, but there must be an, another way to stop the air pollution that's coming from it. But it's very frustrating because this is worse than Love Canal. It's worse than any site I've been, and it's because it's radioactive waste, it's a garbage landfill, it's a fire and that's just terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And I just, you know, my heart goes out to these folks. And, you know, I spend an awful lot of time, more time on this site than any other ones because of the situation. Lois Gibbs is executive director of the Center for Health, Environment and Justice. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. We contacted the EPA and Republic Services for comment. A spokesman for Republic Services told us there are no health risks to the community from the two sites, and the company does not believe the radioactive waste will catch fire, and the EPA is in charge. The EPA statement reads in part, The conditions at the site currently do not present the kind of threat to human health that would require relocation of nearby residents. This agency will continue working toward a final remedy to ensure that the site remains that way. The full statements and more information are on our website, LOE.org. A while back, Jennifer Jarrett, reporter in residence at Yellowstone National Park, sent us this evocative audio postcard. I'm Rick McIntyre. I work for the Park Service in Yellowstone National Park, and my title is Biological Technician.
one of the things I often think about when um, we hear Willis Howling is, um, I'm sure you know the story that it was the last of the original Yellowstone wolves were killed in 1926, about a half a mile from where we're standing. And so for any visitor that had come to Yellowstone from 1926 to 1995, when wolves were brought back and reintroduced and reestablished, you know, I'm sure they had a great experience visiting the world's first national park, and they would have seen a lot of great stuff. But there's one thing that they missed out on. There would have been an unnatural silence here. But luckily, we realized what a big mistake that was and figured out how to rectify it. So we're experiencing that right now. That silence is over. That's biologist Rick McIntyre and friends. Reporter Jennifer Jarrett brought us that audio postcard from Yellowstone National Park. Well, Jennifer Jarrett is still following the wolves of Yellowstone, and she says that they literally change their tune come spring. And there's new research on the nature and meaning of how and what the wolves are communicating. Here's her story. There is nothing like springtime in Yellowstone. After the long, snowy hush of winter, the spring season around here just seems to erupt in layers and layers of sound. But unlike most of the other animals in the park, wolves tend to become a little quieter in the spring. Researchers in the park have recently discovered that there is a seasonal cycle to those howls. Biologist Doug Smith is the project leader for all of the wolf research that takes place in Yellowstone National Park. He says that if you're a wolf in Yellowstone, you still howl in the spring, but you howl less, you only howl when you need to, and you're only howling to your pack mates. As the summer grows old, you start howling more and more, and so now you start howling to your neighbors, your enemies, and it increases through the fall and winter. And that's the seasonal cycle. The seasonal cycle peaks in February, which tracks right along with the breeding season in Yellowstone. And there's a lot of howling back and forth between neighboring or rival wolf packs. Wolves are ferociously territorial. And so they howl at others to say, hey, I'm here, stay out. But in the spring, when wolves start establishing den sites to raise pups, everything changes. So what appears to be happening during the denning season is that the howling for territorial purposes goes away. So you stop communicating to your neighbors. So what we've noticed doesn't go away is howling to your pack mates, so your family members. So while there's less howling overall in the spring and summer, the call and response that does go on is almost entirely within pack. Doug has been studying wolves for 35 years. He explains what might be happening. In the winter, the pack's all together and they travel widely, they go everywhere. When they have those pups, wham, an anchor gets thrown in, they become your ball and chain. And wolves need to carry on their business, but they also need to care for their pups. So they leave the pups at the den and they split up well, that presents a problem of how do you coordinate activities, how do you communicate, how do you find each other, well, you howl. So what's so important about that story is that was a previously unknown story, now enter Yellowstone. 
The only way that the research team working in Yellowstone was able to tease apart the seasonality, more howling that tends to be territorial in the fall and winter, less howling that's more family-focused during the spring and summer, is because when it comes to wolf research, Yellowstone's landscape is unique. There's a lot of open country in the park, so you can see the wolves, see what they do when they howl, and this is what provides the context for understanding howling. Through this breakthrough of being able to see and hear and determine the context, that's how John and Mary Taberge, uh, that's the couple that's doing this research, and they were able to quantify this is a howl for the away game and this is a howl for the home game. And that has been leaps and bounds of progress in terms of understanding why wolves howl. To dig into a scientific answer, I called John Taberge at his home, way up in the mountains in British Columbia. I talked with him about this aspect of his work in Yellowstone that's just getting underway. What do the howls mean? And that's the really slippery slope. That's <laughs> it's a complex topic. The ecology of wolves is complex. The theories of animal communication are complex. The mind of the wolf is complex. And one of the most uh, perplexing things is that however we try to interpret another animal's behavior, we do so through our minds. <laughs> Which makes it tricky, even for researchers, to figure out whether there's any real meaning or intention behind different howls. When you sit and listen to that lone wolf howl, almost moaning, it sounds so emotional that it seems to means so much more to the individual wolf. You know, this animal's sad, it's lonely. And, you know, we're trying to really figure out what does that wolf howl mean? Even if we don't know yet what it means, the call of the wolf is an iconic and unforgettable sound that can send chills up the spine. There's a saying around Yellowstone that you never forget your first wolf in the wild. And that's certainly true for Doug Smith. The first time in the wild I heard a wolf howl was on Owl Royal. And um, it was in the middle of the night. I was standing outside the tent in my underpants. The bugs weren't too bad and the moon was shining. And then way off in the darkness of the night, a wolf howled. It came from, oh gee, I don't know mile or two out, and right at the end, when I swear, it came in so close that I could hear the uh, sticks snapping. I mean, the howls were booming in, and it was like in the palm of your hands, and that wolf never stepped into the light of the moon, and I never saw it. That was nature at its best. There are a lot of people like Doug in this park. People come from all over the world to see and hear wild wolves in Yellowstone. And this latest research into wolf ecology, communication, and behavior offers an opportunity to move further beyond seeing and hearing, to take another tiny step closer toward understanding the mind of the wolf. For Living on Earth, I'm Jennifer Jarrett in Yellowstone National Park. Jennifer's story was made in conjunction with the Montana State University Library's Acoustic Atlas Project. Thanks also to the Yellowstone Association and the Yellowstone Park Foundation. Now, Doug Smith was telling Jennifer that his first close encounter with a wolf was on Isle Royal, an isolated island in Lake Superior where wolves have been closely studied. 
Indeed, scientists have followed the wolves and the moose they prey on at Isle Royale National Park for over five decades, the longest study of its kind in the world. But now the study is threatened by the dwindling number of predators, and the wolves could be gone as early as next year. One of the study leaders, Rolf Peterson, is an ecologist at Michigan Technological University, and he joins us to explain what's happening. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you. Isle Royale is an island, so how do wolves and moose get there? The present moose population became established over 100 years ago, probably by individuals swimming from the mainland 15 to 20 miles away. Lake Superior is so cold that only a very large animal like a moose could survive the cold water. Wolves came about 50 years later, and probably in the late 1940s, and they would have come across the ice in the winter. Now, Rolf, you've been observing this interaction between the wolf and the moose for decades now. What did the wolf-moose relationship look like back when the project started? Well, in 1958, when the project began, no one had any idea what was going to happen at Isle Royale. Some people thought quite seriously that the wolves would kill off all the moose and then start in on people. And what initially seemed to be the case was that there was some sort of static balance between wolves and moose. But after 50 years or more, it's quite clear that the wolf-moose system, the predator-prey relationship, is very dynamic, and these populations are in motion all the time. Actually, now we realize that the whole system is driven by fairly rare events that are relatively unpredictable. For example, new genetic renewal. A wolf makes it over from the mainland and changes the genetic pool? Yeah, a wolf wanders over from the mainland and becomes a breeding individual on the island. And we had one very good example of that that began in 1997. His genes quickly went through the whole population and fundamentally changed the wolf-moose vegetation dynamic. The uh, wolf population was rejuvenated rather spectacularly, and then amazingly, the wolves killed moose at a higher rate than we'd ever seen before, and they were just better at preying on moose. And that led to an extended number of years when moose were at a low level, and that resulted in a major release of vegetation that the moose typically eat. So it was a a three-level response. Now, what other factors can change that balance between the wolves and moose? Well, we've seen certainly that a new disease in the wolf fundamentally changed everything. In 1981, a mutant virus called canine parvovirus got to Isle Royale and wolf population crashed. And then the immigrant in 1997 resolved that. You know, you sort of have to look at the system as a historian would look at it and realize that it's just one big event after another. Now, how did you track this uh, predator-prey interaction over the years and its effects on the rest of the Isle Royale ecosystem? Each winter since 1959, uh, there's been a small airplane at Isle Royale for uh, up to seven weeks, and all the wolves are counted. The moose are sampled and censused by counting about 15 to 20% of the island. That gives us basically wolf-moose numbers every year. Vegetation has been a harder thing to track, but uh, actually we've had some luck tracking back in time, looking at tree rings. And wolves, although they feed primarily on moose, uh, there's a secondary prey species, the beaver. And the beaver is the great animal engineer who totally renovates habitats by flooding them and creating lakes. So as wolves prey on beaver, so goes the, uh, the beaver activities. Uh, tell me today about how many moose and how many wolves are on the island, and what does the interaction look like right now? 
Well, 2015, we just wrapped up our studies a few weeks ago, and there were three wolves left, which is the lowest we've ever seen it. And the moose are increasing pretty quickly. I uh, stand at 1,250 animals right now, and they've doubled in the last four years. And what's been the high of the wolf population there? Oh, we had as many as 50 wolves in 1980, and the average is uh, 20 to 30, roughly two dozen wolves. So why are there so few wolves there? That's a product of close inbreeding. After the arrival of this new wolf in 1997, while things were really good for a while, eventually his genes were so successful that everybody was finally a descendant of his. So how does the current population show its inbreeding? The most obvious sign of inbreeding is the fact that they've got spinal abnormalities. That means extra vertebrae or asymmetrical vertebrae started out very low, a few percentage, and by 1994 it had risen to the point where 100% of the wolves have spinal abnormalities. With a warmer world, less often there's an ice bridge, so less often there's a chance for some fresh wolf DNA to make it on an ice bridge over there. How accurate is that picture, do you think? Well, that's pretty accurate. Back in the 60s, uh, when observations were first being made of wolves and moose, uh, ice would be the typical situation in winter. Uh, you'd have an ice bridge four years out of five. Now it's more like one year out of ten. Well, at just three wolves, how sustainable is this population, do you think? Well, given the, the genetic makeup of the current three that are left, I wouldn't give it a chance at all of survival. Without new genetic material, I'd say it's a doomed population. I've recommended the last four years to do a genetic rescue. In other words, drop a couple wolves off from the mainland that would breed with the resident wolves. That should lead to a masking of deleterious or bad genes, we could call them. At this point now, in 2015, with only three wolves left, the opportunities to do a genetic rescue are mostly gone. So what's the future of this longest predator-prey study in the world right now? Well, the predator-prey study could become just a prey study, and that uh, loses a lot of its uh, significance. Rolf Peterson is an ecologist at Michigan Technological University and one of the Wolf Moose Project leaders at Isle Royale. Thank you so much, Rolf. Thanks, Steve. It's been great to talk to you again. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. Time to check on the world beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra of Environmental Health News, ehn.org, and thedailyclimate.org. He's on the line now from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What have you found? Hi, Steve. You know, I've been working up a righteous anger about the environment and taxes. So let's embark on the first of three stops where bad money decisions have led to bad policy. Okay, who's on first? The Department of Energy's Hanford site, where Cold War pressures built a mess and a money hole in the high desert of Washington state. At Hanford and other nuclear weapons production sites, armies of factory workers churned out nuclear bombs and their components and a whole lot of toxic and radioactive waste for decades with oversight of the waste problems pretty much an afterthought. As the Cold War wound down in the 80s and 90s, Americans woke up to a huge environmental mess. 
And the cities and towns that built up around it were looking at, well, should we say an uncertain future? Or so they thought. But for the three small cities near the Hanford plant, one of the biggest concentrations of PhDs in America, by the way, the business of building the bomb turned into the even bigger business of cleaning up after the bomb. The cleanup tab for the Hanford site runs into the billions of dollars every year. And the conventional wisdom is that the cleanup wouldn't wrap up for another 50 years from now. But officials from DOE and from the state of Washington say they're about 25 years behind schedule on the cleanup. And over time, the price tag may balloon by tens of billions of dollars more. Whoa, that's some serious coins. It's like the Cold War has a 100-year adjustable rate mortgage that's going up. Indeed. Let's move on to some smart government spending that's been largely abandoned. In the aftermath of the unrest in Baltimore and other cities a few weeks ago, there was a focus on the role of deep cuts in federal funding to help fix long-standing lead poisoning issues that impact inner-city kids. Over the past few years, federal grants to local governments for lead poisoning work have largely dried up, and cash-strapped cities are in no shape to fill the breach. In Chicago, for example, spending on programs to remove old lead paint from homes and other risks has been cut in half, even as blood lead levels are still rising in some of the city's poorest neighborhoods. Yeah, we've reported on the links between lead poisoning and violence among young people before, so this sounds like a squandered opportunity for environmental justice. And it's being repeated in cities across the U.S. Detroit has had a widely praised lead poisoning program that's under threat as well. The strange irony here is that while the bean counters in Congress were cutting funding for lead poisoning, the Centers for Disease Control had tightened standards for lead levels in kids. Hmm, so that makes strike two. Where are we going on the Magical History Tour this week, Peter? Back to 1872, when men were men and Western land was there for the taking. You mean taking it from Native Americans. And giving much of it away again on the cheap. So that makes for an environmental funding trifecta. 143 years ago this week, the General Mining Law of 1872 decreed that mineral rights on federal land would be given away for a price per acre that'll get you a large bag of Doritos today. About five bucks per acre for hard rock mining throughout the West. Little has changed, including the price, and critics say it's not only one of the oldest government giveaways, but one of the biggest as well. Well, with all the rhetoric about keeping government small and not wasting government resources, you'd think it's about time to fix this. No such luck, Steve. There have been periodic efforts to revise or abolish the 1872 mining law, but in this current Congress, there's little chance of that. Mining companies have a very loud voice in Western politics, and this is a remarkably sweet deal for them. A billion dollars a year in gold and other metals taken from federal land at five bucks an acre, no royalty payments, and taxpayers get stuck with a tab for cleaning up abandoned mines. And that adds up to more than $2 billion in federal cleanup spending since the start of the 21st century, all thanks to a 19th century law. So there you have it, some dicey environmental spending choices from the 19th century heading towards the 22nd century. Nothing like a bit of depressing news, huh? Peter Dykstra is with EHN, that's ehn.org, and the dailyclimate.org. And, uh, well, thank you, Peter. All right, Steve, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. And you can find more details on these stories at loe.org. May 4th started National Wildflower Week in the U.S., devoted to celebrating the wealth and beauty that carpet woods and meadows for free. So with spring so late here in Boston, for a glimpse of some blooms, we headed out to a nearby suburb for a walk in the Garden of the Woods, the showcase and laboratory for the New England Wildflower Society. There are some 3,500 species and subspecies of native plants in the region that are used to tough winters, though they are under stress from climate change, development, and invasive species. We arranged to meet Elizabeth Farnsworth, 
the senior research ecologist for the Wildflower Society at its 30-acre woodland garden. She is the lead author of this year's State of the Plants report, the most comprehensive assessment of native plants and plant communities ever assembled in the region. Hi there, I'm Steve Kerwood. Hi. Hi, Steve. Nice to meet you. And you are Elizabeth Farnsworth. Yes, indeed. We're here at the Garden in the Woods. So what's here? So what we have here is one of the most beautiful naturalistic gardens, one of the oldest in eastern North America. It has a wonderful selection of native plants that, of course, you can use in your own garden, but also that are broadly representative of the habitats of New England. So we've tried to really recreate the diversity of the different habitats from bogs. We have this beautiful pond here. We have a sand plain habitat that we just installed. So a whole range of different types of plantings. Now, why do native plants matter? They're wonderful plants like daffodils and tulips that come from elsewhere that grace gardens. So why are native plants so important? Native plants evolved here. They evolved in these climates, in the peculiar habitats of New England, and all of the organisms that depend on them co-evolved with these plants. And so if you look at the tulips in your garden or the daffodils in your garden, how many bees are actually visiting those? How many butterflies are coming in to actually pollinate those plants? Versus if you look at some native plants all around you, you'll notice the diversity that's really attracted to them. So you recently completed a study of the region's plant life, how well it's doing, native, non-native, invasive, all that sort of thing. In brief, how are native plants doing in this region? So about 22% of our native flora are regarded as rare. That is endangered, threatened, special concern, or even historic in one or more New England state. So close to 100 species, about 96 species, are now no longer known from New England. They may exist elsewhere, somewhat precariously, but they're no longer here. And that's a pretty substantial number. Um, the majority of our flora is, in fact, native. About 30% have been brought from elsewhere or introduced purposefully or mistakenly. That's about on par with other regions of the country. But about 10% of that set of non-native species are regarded as invasive. So that's about 111 species. Invasive means trouble? Invasive means that these are plants that can grow quite aggressively. They can overtake native plants. They can outcompete them. They can come to dominate a particular habitat. So it becomes very impoverished in terms of plant diversity and often animal diversity. So let's talk about the big ones. What about trees? How are they doing in this region? Well, trees are facing a number of stresses, and it's actually a good example right here at the garden. We have had to remove a number of hemlock trees. These hemlock trees have been attacked by these tiny white insects, the hemlock woolly adelgid, which is spreading across New England, is beginning to, to be seen even farther north. We have the ash trees, which are being affected by the emerald ash borer, which is on our doorstep, moving into western portions of New England. We have sugar maples that are showing some signs of being stressed by warmer temperatures. Not necessarily pests or pathogens yet, but a lot of the climate models do predict a northward sort of contraction of the range of sugar maples. And that's, of course, an iconic tree for New England, but also very important to our economy. And as I look around, I see some big trees here, like there's this 
big red oak. How, how are these trees doing? Um, red oaks are holding their own so far. We're worried about sudden oak death, which of course is sort of a scourge of oaks in California with people transporting wood and potentially transporting disease. Red oaks, of course, uh, we may remember that certain caterpillars really ravaged them, particularly in the 60s, gypsy moth caterpillars. I can recall um, from my childhood just listening to the rain of caterpillar frass and complete defoliation of these trees. But they're pretty resilient. These guys have been here for probably 150 years, and um, they're doing okay. Many of the climate models suggest that as the temperatures warm, that oaks and hickories will become much more dominant on the landscape. Trees which now you know, tend to be dominant further south are likely to be moving into our area, even as some of our more northern adapted species begin to contract north. So tell me more about climate change. Uh, what did you find when you did this evaluation of the plants, the flora, as you scientists call it, in this region? Uh, how is climate affecting things? We're already seeing the effects of shorter winters, um, warmer springs, drier summers. Uh, plants, uh, on average, are flowering, many of them, two weeks earlier in the spring. So we're already picking up a signal that certain plants are responding very strongly to climate change. And in fact, some of our invasive species are responding more strongly than some of our native species. So they're sort of winners and losers in terms of how flexibly plants can actually adapt to climate change. So we understand that what's gonna, that's going to contribute to shifting in our natural communities. It also, the flowering behavior, of course, is really important to pollinators. And so if there is an offset between early flowering plants and the emergence of their pollinators, both parties are going to be unhappy. What has flowered early in the garden in the woods that you think you might attribute to climate disruption? Well, we are starting to see the emergence of these beautiful plants called bloodroot that are members of the poppy family. When those flowers pop out, they're going to be very big and white. Um, are these guys early this year or are they on time? I think they're actually a bit late this year. You know, it's, it's, climate change is a long-term phenomenon with a lot of variability between years, as we've seen. The garden is, is relatively recently free of snow. But if you compare this to two years ago, when we had a very mild winter, many of these plants would have been fully in flower or even finished flowering or even close to in fruit by this time. So these plants are highly sensitive to the temperatures. So let's take a look around uh, this pond here. Sure. So how are uh, ponds, sides of rivers, uh, wet areas uh, doing in terms of uh, native plants here in the region? Well, it kind of depends on what type of wet area you're talking about. But for example, ponds are doing moderately well, although acid rain has changed the chemistry, uh, particularly of our northern ponds, so that they are much more acidic. They can't really support a lot of the plants that used to live alongside the pond or even in, in the pond. So they are um, pretty species poor. Um, some ponds are beginning to recover which is good news. Um, other wet areas, one of which that we covered in our report, are riverside areas, so floodplains, sandbars, those very changeable habitats that occupy river systems. And they're extremely productive. They're very, very rich. And they, of course, do help with flood control. Now for something completely different. This is a sand plain community. 
it is an extremely dry habitat. Think of Cape Cod, think of Martha's Vineyard, think of, you know, much of southern New England where the glaciers kind of dump their sandy load. You'll see the plants that are growing on this landscape are kind of low and scraggly pitch pine here. We have some, some nitrogen-fixing plants here, like bayberry. So they're some of the first pioneers that can come into these really, really nutrient-poor habitats, very dry habitats, and survive. So in your study, how are these plants doing? How is this biome doing? So sand plain habitats are really great for building things like cities and airports and suburbs because, of course, sandy soils perk. Uh, they tend to be nice and flat. So we've lost about 60% of the sand plains that were known from New England when the colonial settlers uh, came in. So um, this looks like cactus. Believe it or not, we have a native cactus species in New England. Yeah. Yeah. And it is considered one of our rarest species. This is an opuntia. It's a prickly pear cactus. And it grows in these tremendously dry sand plain kinds of environments, sand dunes, other, other areas along the coast. And it's only known from a few populations in New England. So one of the reasons that we feature these habitat gardens is to give people an idea of what kinds of native plants could grow in their own particular growing conditions. They'll grow a lot better than that non-native barberry that you're trying to get started. Now we're here in New England. It's its own special place, but uh, somebody listening to us in, uh, say, New Mexico or in California or Colorado, what would you suggest to them? I would suggest much of the same thing that we're doing here in New England. And in fact, by writing the report, we really wanted to begin a national conversation. You know, each of the different states are sort of doing their own thing. Some states working harder than others to really uh, maintain their native flora. Um, some states have more resources than others. Perhaps we can collaborate. Um, California has its share of floodplain habitats that are being impacted. New Mexico has its share of you know, sandplain habitats that are being impacted. So they're important lessons that really cross state boundaries. So what's the risk of not knowing about plants around us? When you don't know the plants around you, you won't know what you've lost when they're actually gone due to habitat destruction or disease or climate change, any of these threats. So it's really important that we understand that the plants are the foundation. And when you start losing important species uh, and this diversity of species, then pretty soon, you know, sort of Rachel Carson alluded to many, many years ago, you won't hear the birds, you won't start to encounter the animals, you won't see the butterflies, and then you may get an inkling of, of just how impoverished um, the natural community around you has become. What do you folks do in terms of seed saving if you're concerned about a species going away? So we do have a very active seed collection program. We are the largest seed bank um, for rare plants in the region. And we have both volunteers and staff who go out and collect seed very prudently from rare plant populations. You never collect from more than 10% of the plants, but we do maintain them in seed banks. They are something of a bet hedging strategy. And we actually successfully recovered a species that was on the federally endangered species 
list. And that was? That was Robin's Cinquefoil. It's a very diminutive little member of the rose family, found only from a few populations on Mount Washington. So in the Alpine, the main population was being completely destroyed by trampling. Hikers. Hikers. And we actually restored many, many plants in that population and actually started a new one close by. So the plant was delisted. It's the only one in the U.S. that's ever been taken off the endangered species list. So the report spells out a, a lot of the hazards for New England's rare plants in particular, but, but there's also some good news in there. Plants are really very resilient, and there are actually things that we can do individually and collectively to you know, celebrate flora and to make it resilient for the future. Elizabeth Farnsworth is a senior research ecologist at the New England Wildflower Society. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you so much. It was delightful talking with you. Next time on Living on Earth, the hidden dangers lurking in talcum powder. What could be seemingly less ominous than talc? We put it on babies' bottoms. You just sort of have no idea that there might be a risk here. Why women might want to think twice before they sprinkle on the powder. That's next time on Living on Earth. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show was engineered by Tom Tiger with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, and Jeff Wade. Allison Learish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International